0: All right, um, we are going to continue today our study, Herman Hu, talking about hermeneutics. And some of you have notes to follow along. We are going to back up just a tad, because last week we covered the lesson where he was going through the different genres or categories of Old Testament Scripture, and we made it through all of the Old Testament, but you see on the first sheet of your page, if you have these notes that we're actually going to start with Old Testament prophecy today. There are some Proverbs notes at the top, and we're not going to cover the Proverbs again. But starting with Old Testament prophecy, and then we're going to watch all the way through. You flip through your pages there. The different New Testament genres, okay? Uh, Again, you got the fire hose of lots of information. Uh, But let me start with a generic question. How does the understanding of different genres in the biblical text help you to interpret the Bible rightly? So we were just talking about a bunch of different genres. How does the understanding that there are different genres in the Bible help you to interpret the text more accurately? Yeah. And what would happen if we approached every text of Scripture like it was a poem? What would happen to our interpretation? It would get weird in a hurry, wouldn't it? Everything would be a metaphor. Everything would be, you know, a a spiritualized version of this or that or the other hidden meaning or whatever. Um, If we interpreted every text as if it was a poem, that would be bad. What if we interpreted the poetry of Scripture not as poetry but as literal, wooden literal meaning? Then we would believe something like God is a chicken, right? (laughs) <laughs> we would say, okay, well, it says, look, he wants to cover you with the, under the shadow of his wings. God has wings. Add that to the list of our theo- theological beliefs. Well, that's, that's not good, is it? So we have to recognize different genres, and as we approach any given text, we have to think about, of course, who's writing, why is he writing, what's the purpose, and what's the point that he's trying to communicate. Uh, if it's a poem where he's crying out to God, like David in the Psalms, you're going to approach that and understand that quite a bit differently than Luke writing a detailed account of what the apostles did in the book of Acts. Right? They're just two very different genres or categories. Um, Now, speaking of the book of Acts, I wanted to camp out there. Oh, well, I guess there was a, a point I wanted to make about parables. He said, as a rule, parables have how many points? How many points does each parable have? One point one point. Because what happens when you start making every detail in one of Jesus's fictitious stories, because a parable is a story where he's saying, you know, suppose there was a man who was doing this or that. It's a story. It's a fiction. What would happen if you took every detail of that fiction and tried to make a connection to some reality? You would end up in a very weird place and sometimes a very heretical place. He used the example of Matthew 25 There's also Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow. Do you remember this parable? Where she was being unjustly treated, so she kept pestering the judge until finally the judge said, Okay, I will hear you out. Is the point of that parable to say that that's how God is in our relationship with God? He's a a nasty, unrighteous judge, and we just need to go pester him until he gives in? Well, no. So you see, if you take every detail of a parable that's outside of the point that Jesus is making, and you try to make theological connections out of it, you could end up in a really weird place. So, don't do that, okay? Look for the point and then understand everything else in light of the point. Uh, In the book of Acts, Acts is a very tricky book because it is inspired, it's in your Bible for a reason, it's necessary, it's good, but there are crazy things that happen in the book of Acts, aren't there? And this is in the church. We're not, we're not looking back to the Old Testament saying, well, that was in Old Testament times when God was doing things a little bit differently in the world. In the book of Acts, that's our time. That's the church age. So you read the book of Acts and you see Paul touches a handkerchief and then that handkerchief goes and heals somebody when they get it. What do you do with that? You've got all kinds of crazy things. I know Mark taught on several of the crazy passages when we went through the book of Acts verse by verse uh, where you read it and you're like, okay, well... That's strange. That's abnormal. What does that mean? Well, he gave us six principles. In the book of acts, you have to ask the question, is it a command? Because if you read something like the handkerchief thing, is that a command then for you to go and touch handkerchiefs and give them healing powers and then ship them off to other people so they can be healed? Well, no, that's not a command. Okay? So, that takes care of a lot of them. And then asking other things like is the activity repeated? Or is it just a one-time event? That's important too. Okay, is it something like they, the disciples got together, they studied, they had communion, they sang? That's repeated. Or is it something like, um, you know, Paul was bitten by a snake and was okay? A one-time event, right? So there's a difference between those things. If it is repeated, are the details the same? You see some repeated events in the book of Acts, but the details change and the other 3. If the action is something new, proceed with caution. Interpret acts with the rest of scripture in mind. And if there's something in the narrative that contradicts scripture, it's not intended to be repeated. And this goes back to what we talked about last week. If if an author of scripture writes that something happened, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. It just it happened. Solomon had many wives. It doesn't follow up with saying and that was bad. It just said he had many wives but it was bad. It's a bad idea. It was against God's design. It was bad. So what you have to understand is it's mentioned, but even though it doesn't say it's bad, that doesn't mean it's not bad. You have to interpret it in light of all of Scripture. Okay, so I wanted us to think through that just a little bit because sometimes you get to the book of Acts with somebody and they say, well, look, the early church was doing this, this, and this. That's what we should be doing. And you say, well, hold on just a second. Acts is a narrative It's not a book of commands, it's a book telling us of something that happened, it's history. Does that mean we automatically take what they did and apply it to us? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Thoughts or questions on any of that so far? That's right. Yeah, you see it in the book of Acts. They received the Holy Spirit and they spoke with other tongues. So, if you've not spoken with other tongues, you haven't received the Holy Spirit, right? Well, no, that is a unique way that God worked through, through the early church in showing who had the Holy Spirit. The Jews received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and they spoke with other tongues. In Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, and they spoke with other tongues. So Peter says, look, they received the Holy Spirit just as we did. It's a sign from God signifying that the Gentiles are included in the church. To take it beyond that would be Abuse of Scripture. Other thoughts or questions? Joseph, did you have something? Yeah. Yeah. Those Appalachian churches, Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's usually, it's in the eastern part of the country. Uh, Kentucky, West Virginia, the Carolinas, you'll find churches like that. Snake handling churches. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, never commanded that we should do such a thing. So, yeah, yeah. No one brought a snake today, right? <laughs> okay, that's, that's good. <laughs> that could... Put up that no, snakes no snakes allowed, yeah. Well, if it becomes a problem, we'll probably do that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Other thoughts or questions on the Gospels and the book of Acts, parables and stuff? Okay, Um, when he started talking about the epistles, the letters that Paul, Peter, John wrote, he said, if you forget the occasion for writing, then you're just listening to one side of a phone conversation. I thought that was a good illustration. If you forget why Paul was writing to the Corinthians, and you don't even think about that, and you just read it and think, what does this mean to me? Well, all you're getting is one side of the conversation. Now, we don't have anything provided uh, that's preserved. The Corinthians said this to Paul, or they responded this way. We don't have that. But we do have a lot of historical context as to why Paul was saying the things he was saying to that church. So, that all has to happen first before you start thinking about yourself. Because if you don't understand why Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, you're not going to know what that means for you today. If you just jump to, well, this is just… God speaking to me, uh, in fact, I, I've heard the, uh, the phrase before, you know, read the Bible like God's love letter to you. Uh, you know, yes and no, yes in the sense that God is speaking to you, this Word is preserved for you to read, to learn, to grow, all of that stuff, but in the original context, Moses wasn't writing the five books of the Bible to you, or the, five, the first five books of the Bible to you. Uh, Paul wasn't writing the letter to the Corinthians to you. He was writing it to the Corinthians. So you have to understand that first before you can then apply it to yourself. Uh, very key principle. If you skip that, your interpretation is going to go all over the place. Okay? Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the only, I think, the only parable that's questioned on is it a parable or not is the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16. If you remember that story, you've got uh, Lazarus being the poor man. The rich man had walked by him every day, never helping him. They both died, uh, and one went to Abraham's bosom, Lazarus, and the rich man went to Hades. And then they have this little interaction where uh, Jesus is, well, you, yeah, you've got Jesus speaking with the uh, rich man, and the rich man saying, look, I'm in agony, I'm in torment in this flame, give me a drop of water. And uh, he says, can you please go back, or can I go back and tell my brothers? I've got brothers who are still alive, and I want to warn them about what happened to me. And Jesus said, well, look, they've got Moses, they've got the prophets. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe it if a man comes back from the dead. So that's Interesting passage. So, you've got people who say, look, that was a parable, and then you've got other people who say, no, that was a real story that happened. And there's um, a list of about five reasons or so as to why there are people who interpret that as a a real story. One of the top reasons is because Jesus uses a real name. He uses Lazarus, a person's name. You don't see Jesus doing that in any other parable. If this is a parable, there's no other parable where Jesus uses a name. He says, suppose a man, a, a sower went out to sow, Matthew 13. Uh, That sort of thing. You also have the question of what's the point if, you know, what does Abraham's bosom in Hades represent? Then what's the point? If that's not a real story, then what is the meaning that Jesus is trying to bring from this fictitious story if it's not a real one? Uh, Because it's presented in a way uh, that it it doesn't have an illustration, really. There's not a a type antitype element going on. It's a, this happened kind of presentation instead of a sower went out to sow and you had some seeds that fell here and some seeds that fell there and this represents this this represents that what what would that be in that story and so that's why you have some people saying that it's a true story not a parable but then you have other people looking at it and saying uh no this is just right in line jesus is telling parables it's right in line with the rest of those and so we need to see it not as a true event but as as a parable In which case, you would have to, I think, then give a spiritualized meaning for what Abraham's bosom is and what Hades is um, if they aren't real places, but I don't know. I believe it's a real story. So, other thoughts or questions on that (laughs) or anything else? Okay. All right. The last one was Revelation. Would you agree that Revelation is the hardest to interpret out of all the books of the Bible? (laughs) Yeah, it's a tough one. There are are Christians who purposely, for years, avoid the book of Revelation. Perhaps you fit into that category because it is just different. It's different. If nothing else, it's different. Um, What did you get from his explanation of the book of Revelation? Anything jump out at you? Yeah. So it like, what, what you to right. Yes. It's, 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 it's like, you to the sound. Yeah. Yeah, I think all Bible readers approach Revelation with, look, there's a lot of figurative stuff in there the disagreement comes on which parts are figurative and which parts are literal. <laughs> because you have some that say, look at it and say, well, the vast majority of it is figurative. There's not much literal in there. Then you've got the others saying, well, let's pump the brakes a little bit. I think there's quite a bit of literal, and it's all intermingled. So then how do you discern which is which? Because you've got not only descriptions of events taking place on the earth, you have descriptions of heavenly beings, like the, the four creatures, the four beasts. You've got um, time being listed throughout, number of months or years or whatever, days. You've got all these, all these things happening, which ones are literal, which ones are figurative. And it seems sometimes like flip a coin. I don't know. Well, we, we can do better than flipping a coin, all right? There are principles. And Howard Hendricks gave the, the 10 principles from Howard Hendricks. I thought those were pretty good. Um, basic rules of thumb, use a literal sense unless there's good reason not to. Use the figurative sense when the passage tells you to I think those are pretty obvious. Um, but then goes into some other ones that I thought were, were helpful. So other thoughts or questions about revelation? Anybody understand it fully and ready to teach it? With a timeline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for those seven churches. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, so, yeah, it's a... It, Revelation's a difficult one, that's for sure. But it's not an impossible one, because you've got to remember, just like with the other books of Scripture, God did preserve it for us today, didn't He? He preserved it. There are other letters and books we know about that He didn't preserve, like one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. Didn't preserve it. Not for us today. Book of Revelation, preserved for us today. So, He has it there for us, for our edification, for our growth, for our faith, for our knowledge, all of those reasons. But it does take work. It is work. Okay, thoughts or questions on hermeneutics generally? I guess, suppose we could start the next video, not finish it, but I'm definitely open to taking questions. Uh, It's hard to really jazz up this concept. (laughs) Let's see, we only have uh, 20 minutes left, so. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, How they relate to one yeah, another? I mean, you've got what he was you saying is you've got a Jeremiah or you know, Isaiah writing, he's writing about this you know, subject at this time, not understanding that that also is a reference to the virgin or. Yeah. Right. Or Isaiah 15, hmm. Well, at least my phone. Sure. Well, let's start in First Peter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's look there together. Um We covered this in, on Wednesday night, a number of weeks ago. Let's look at verses. I'll start at verse 10. First Peter chapter one, starting at verse 10. You've got in the first part of the letter, Peter is explaining salvation to I shouldn't say, explaining salvation. He is reminding those who have been saved, his audience, the recipients of his letter, about their salvation. And their identity in Christ, he's explaining to them how they now as saved individuals are children of God, and he's laying the foundation for all the commands that are going to follow in the letter. So Peter didn't just write a letter and say, hey, you men, do this. Hey, you, you younger people, do this. He starts off by saying, you all have been saved in Christ. You've been, he's caused you to be born again to a living hope. You have obtained salvation in Jesus. And then he goes on to explain commands. But as he's talking about this salvation, look at verse 10 with me. It says, "'As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you.'" And these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So we'll stop there. What we see in these three verses in First Peter 1 is that the prophets had the Spirit of Christ. How were they able to write Scripture? They were inspired by God and they received, it says, the Spirit of Christ, which shows they have the same Holy Spirit as we do. We would say that we have the Spirit of Christ also. And so they were being moved along as they wrote, and it says that they made careful searches and inquiries into what they were writing. So you can imagine Isaiah writing Isaiah 53. He uh, it talks about he, he carried our sins, He bore our, our weaknesses, by His wounds we are healed. You read through that, and from our perspective, of course, this is very clearly talking about the gospel events, because go we did this this last Wednesday night. You go to the gospel events, you read them, and there He is, the suffering servant, But Isaiah was 700 years before that happened. So what did Isaiah see? Well, immediately, it seems like he didn't see as clearly as we do. He had to make careful searches and inquiries. And it says that uh, it was revealed to these prophets like Isaiah that they weren't serving themselves, but they were serving us, meaning at least that these events weren't going to happen at their time, but it was going to happen in the future. So there was some indication in this passage that the prophets were told by God that these events that they were writing about, some of them, were not for their generation but for a future generation, namely us here in the church age who have heard the gospel and been saved by the power of God. So um, that's the first thing we need to know is that we don't know exactly what the prophets knew except that... They knew that many of the things they were writing that were yet future having to do with Jesus, they weren't going to happen in their generation, okay? First thing to know. Um, so, when you take a passage like Mark mentioned, the uh, virgin birth passage, Isaiah 7, you've got uh, the Christmas time verse, "'Behold, the virgin will be found with child, she'll bear a child, and she will give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel.'" Did Isaiah have Christmas in mind? <laughs> well, as a Jew living in 700 or whatever year it was, B.C., uh, no, he didn't have Christmas in mind. But he knew that apparently this was a future event, and to what degree did he have, uh, did he have knowledge that this had to do with the Messiah? We just don't know. However, there was an immediate application of that text to his culture. If you read through Isaiah 7, there's a context to that. It's not a statement that came to him out of nowhere, but he was talking about a virgin in his time, in his day, a young woman who was unbetrothed, who was going to become pregnant and was going to give birth to a son. That's what Isaiah was immediately writing about. Now, as far as the mountain mountain peaks go, Todd Friel talked about that in the video, and the valley between, we don't know how much he knew other than apparently he knew that there would be some sort of a valley for some of those prophecies. When you get to the New Testament, they take, the writers of the New Testament take Isaiah 7, behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and call his name Emmanuel. They take that verse and they apply it to Jesus. So now what they've done is they've expanded the meaning of that verse. Did they change the meaning of that verse? No, because the meaning that Isaiah had in Isaiah 7 had an actual significance to the people he was writing to, the, the people that he was ministering to as a prophet of God. Now, in the New Testament, that meaning has been expanded. Okay? It hasn't changed the original meaning, but it's expanded that, that meaning in the sense that, well, there was more going on than just this woman in Isaiah's day. There was obviously, in a way, God was working through Isaiah to lay a foundation as a prophecy for the Messiah who was to come. So it gets really tricky as we start dealing with how does the Old Testament predict the New Testament? How does the New Testament use the Old Testament? There's just a lot of complications there. It's a very worthy discussion. I imagine when the video series ends, we're going to spend some time talking through that here and how our specific hermeneutic uh, is laid out as our church, how we approach the Scriptures. Uh, But what we need to know is that meanings don't change, but meanings can be expanded, very obviously, by just looking at that one Isaiah prophecy, okay? Okay. Now, that could bring up a hundred more questions. We'll see how many we can address. Joe. (laughs) Why would Isaiah bring up that point? Well, Isaiah only said what he said in the book of Isaiah... Because God superintended the whole process, right? He only said what God would want him to say. Now, that's not to say he became a robot. He was obviously addressing stuff that was going on in this culture. And so, if you look at Isaiah 7... Oh, I was using my phone, wasn't I? If you go to Isaiah 7, if you have a heading over your uh, sections in the Bible, Isaiah 7 is going to say something about Babylon. It's going to say... Or not Babylon. um, Yeah. I don't know why I said Babylon. Babylon. If you look at, let's see, let's read starting at verse 10, so you can get a better feel as for what's going on in the actual text. We probably should have started here. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz, this is Isaiah 7, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God, make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. If you take verses 15 and 16 and try to apply those to Jesus, you're going to have some difficulties. There are going to be some issues. Isaiah, as he was recording this whole ordeal, was writing down what God had him to write down that applied, number one, to his culture, and then number two, verse 14, having to do with Emmanuel, you shall call his name Emmanuel, having to do with Jesus. There was an immediate meaning and application, and then there was an expanded meaning and application in the New Testament. So, um, when it comes to breaking down in Isaiah 7, how that played out in history with what virgin was he talking about, who bore a son, uh, I knew the answer at one time, and it's slipped out of my head for the moment but I can come back around and answer that at a later time. But there was someone that he was referencing in his time, in that culture, that that applied to. Okay? The meaning was then expanded as it was applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And this is the nature of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation is just the idea that God didn't give us the whole Bible at one time. He didn't give Adam the Bible. Did Moses know more about God than Abraham? Yes. Say yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, he did. Because there was much more revelation about God's nature, God's character, who man is, what salvation is. Much more given to Moses than to Abraham. What about David? Did David know more than Moses? Yes. Okay. Uh, Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, did he know more than David? And do we know more than all those people in the Old Testament because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the outworking of all these things and the building of the church? Yes, we just know more because there's been more revelation given, right? So it all has to do with progressive revelation in how do the things that we know today affect the things that they knew then? And, and here's, here's the proposition I'm putting forward. The things we know today don't go back and change the things that were told then. However, there are some things that are expanded upon. Okay? The meaning never changes. God didn't say you know, to, uh, I don't know, pick somebody in the Bible, Elijah, hey, this is the case, and then later on says to David, hey, that's actually not the case. You know, that's not what happens. However, meaning does get expanded and built upon. Okay? God is building His revelation throughout history. Like I said, it's hard to really... Jazz this up and to make it exciting. But this is probably one of the most important things we could talk about is how do you read your Bible? We just want to read it, and that's good. We just want to know, and that's good. But you have to have tools in your hands, and it takes work. It takes practice, it takes work. A few minutes left. Any other questions or thoughts when it comes to Bible interpretation? OK? Well, how about this? I'll close with prayer, and we'll start next, the next video next week, because there's only five minutes. Um, I'll close with prayer, and then we'll just spend some time in this room chatting. We don't want to go out there quite yet, because the other classes haven't let out, but you can just talk amongst yourselves and kick back for a few minutes, and then we'll be free to leave the room. But right now, you're in the cage, okay? All right. Lord, we thank You again for Your Word and for this day You've provided for the breath in our lungs, for the brain that you've given us to be able to interpret communication. We thank you that your word was written in a way that's understandable to us, that even though you are so much higher than us and your ways are above our ways, you have condescended to speak to us. And we thank you for that. This is a great responsibility we have to handle your word rightly, and we want to do it for your honor. And so we ask that you'd guide us in this endeavor that we would uh, really just seek to glorify You in our Bible study. Lord, give us a great rest of our day as we fellowship with one another, as we grow and learn through Your Word. Please bless each and every ministry taking place here today, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.